appreciate that you made the coffee because now you know my pain. Alex is not here, thankfully. Yo, respect. He's not here to criticize us. What does he say when you make the coffee? He just doesn't think it's good. I forget what he says. He says someone keeps f***ing up the uh, beans. (laughs) We can't put that in because I swore. Too late. It's on record. These are the best moments right here. At this point, we have to get rid of the clean label on iTunes. That's what's going to have to happen. Oh, man. No, you can selectively add that little E explicit. If we just drop a lot of F-bombs on one particular episode. Yeah. Does beeping count? If you beep the swear words, will it still be clean? Good good call. I don't know. Anyway. um, All right. Here's my first gulp. Ew, that was gross. <laughs> um, this is fine. It's better than Seven Eleven coffee. It looks like it looks like Coca Cola. It's if, better than Seven Eleven coffee. You did fine. Mikey, thoughts on the coffee? We have a guest, special guest, Mikey Scott. All right, here we go. I'm usually the guy that gets the coffee and then drinks it like ten minutes, fifteen minutes after because it's too hot. So here we go. I want honesty. I mean, it's thick. I told you. It's a thick, it's a, it's a thick it's a, pot. It's a thick coffee. Yeah, there we go. All right, Mikey, for people who don't know you, maybe you can introduce yourself. Where are you from? Cool. So my name is Mikey Scott. Uh, I'm actually from Toronto, living in Vancouver for 18 years. Next year is a pivotal year because I lived in Toronto for 19. So I feel like I can actually say I'm from Vancouver. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's going to be half-half now. That's it. That's it. That's life. Is it time to move then? Could so be. the next 19 years somewhere else? Could be. Just finished up a nice stint at a great company. So now I'm on a travel routine and was actually just in Bali with a bunch of the Stussy guys and now over here to spend some time with some friends and now head home. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. I really wish I had the chance to go. I was just um, traveling, but actually not that I got invited. (laughs) Adding myself into the equation. But yeah, maybe you can tell people about the whole experience. Um, Yeah, so every year people at Stussy bring together a bunch of different uh, members of the tribe. So the tribe has like been built over 30 some odd years. And the idea is to just, you know, have people celebrate a culture, come come together. And this year was actually in Bali. So they had a whole bunch of people from music, everyone from uh, Jules Gaten, who I used to work with at a former position, who's great, amazing DJ, all the way into Benji B, into Guillaume Berg, into the guys from No Vacancy. So kind of like a culture who's who when it comes to yeah. uh, a great, you know, opportunity just to put some music and some vibes into a great area. And they actually had a mini ramp on the side of a uh, a pool at a big resort, which was Potato Head. Yeah, Potato Head, right? Yeah, it's yeah. pretty cool. I didn't even know there was a Potato Head here in Hong Kong. Yeah, oh, actually, yeah, yeah. there's a really, really cool music room they have that's kind of, kind of speakeasy-like where it's in the back and you have to walk through a bunch of corridors. It's really cool. Was it your first time in Bali? Uh, no, it's actually my third, oh. but it was my second Aspiring time. Aspiring pro surfer. <laughs> yeah, my second time getting sick. So oh, no, I'm that's sorry. It. No, it was good. I had a whole week, so I got in the water, surfed, and then uh, took in some culture and some music, and it was wicked. Took in some air conditioning, didn't get burnt. Oh, Not bad. Yeah. What, what, what was it like to be amongst all these dudes that have had such an important role in defining in some way music culture in many ways street culture yeah it was it was really cool because i i I didn't know that many people there you know there was probably 40 40 some odd people there and i had uh roots with maybe 15 of them but it was great to be on the sidelines because i got to actually watch a bunch of people come together that don't you know obviously get to spend a lot of time together Mm -hmm. but i could just kind of 
feel like I was included in something special when I saw everyone just kind of greet themselves for the the first time. And it was interesting because you just realize that there's different generations and there's always something that brings all these people together. And in this time it was music and it's also a brand. So having a brand with the, the kind of like, uh, you know, the, it, it definitely resonates Stussy with different generations. So I think seeing all those generations together and celebrating music and culture in a cool place, it's, it's, you know, something special to be a part of. Sound like an amazing experience. And you're also talking amongst just us too about how people were busting out like vintage t-shirts, right? Yes. What was that like to see sort of this whole lineage of archival stuff on people's backs nonetheless? Yeah, I mean, there's not many brands that, you know, have, have uh, stayed relevant uh, throughout like a, a set of time. You have like Massimo and Gotcha and all these brands that started about the same time as Stussy, but none of them are really here. Uh, so to see people with these Stussy shirts that are, from 87, you know what I mean? From like way back. And they're kind of wearing them like a, a badge of honor. And truthfully, they are. You know, they survived the test of time. And uh, it's a brand's uh, duty to kind of maintain its relevance inside of a culture. So to see that, it's far and few between, especially with all the new brands that are starting up now, being on trend. And, you know, it takes, a, takes something to create a trend versus just stay on it. What do you think? I think it's interesting to me too that they would gather all of these relevant in different ways, people together without, you know, a, some kind of agenda, I guess, like it seems very agenda list to me to just gather people to have a good time to let them talk and share ideas and not be like, oh, we want you all together to create some kind of final product, or we're going to put out some like three minute video. This is to, like, exactly what Mikey this. was saying on the way up. Yeah, it's just, it, it's really cool. Because I mean, as a, as kind of like a disclaimer, I got the invite through a friend and uh, there's a direct, you know, relationship that a lot of these people have with Stussy. They either work with them or um, they've been a part of it in the past by being a retailer or anything like that. So my, my involvement was strictly just through a friend of mine who's, um, you know, making some key decisions at Stussy. Yeah. And with, with that being said, it's like you have to have someone that really gets it to do these types of events. And with that being said, not many people get it. And I'm not, I'm not like throwing it out there in a bad way. I'm just being honest to say that in the world of like everything being measurable, especially digitally, it's like they didn't gather people together to have a bunch of different uh, people post on social media and this yeah. and that. There was nothing that was yeah. like, you have to do this if you come. So it was really cool to see that people are just sharing what they're involved in. And these people just happen to be at a level where other people follow them. And And even if they're not, you know, there's people that came through that were friends of friends that you know, I was able to spend some time with in great conversations and lots of different people from lots of different brands who work at, you know, like Nike and whatnot, like yeah. they come through because they were OG Stussy people. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Uh, I think everything Mikey said is super on point and Mikey's background is in marketing. So I think he has a very firm grasp of like where things were, where they're going and what the future is. So, you know, I, I think it's really refreshing to see someone's very analytical take on sort of situations like that because as we all know, like marketing in this current current age and landscape, it's very, very difficult to the noise. And there's also such an easy way to quantify what the return on investment is. And yeah. it's nice to know that, hey, you know what, let's set ourselves a bar, maybe like it's almost like an invisible bar where you're worrying less about what 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 the metric to measure it is. So much as like, hey, this is the right thing to do. And I think there's not enough instances of 
let's just do something for the sake of building community versus let's just use this as a means to an end to ensure we get this many page views, this many views on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's just, it's part of like a longer narrative. It, it seemed like that. So, I mean, just being involved in that and looking at it and, you know, I'm a marketer's marketer. I love it. I eat it up. People have stories to tell. I listen. You know, I, I love the ability to kind of uh, learn more and, and it's it's a job to kind of learn and it's also a job for the the brand itself to kind of educate. So mm. to kind of look at it from that lens, it's like there has to be something that comes out of spending time, you know, whether it's like an appreciation, whether it's an objection, there needs to be a reaction. So Eugene, you were traveling as well? Yes, I was on a retreat, which I won't go too much into detail because mm-hmm. I have a story planned around it, but it was honestly pretty enlightening. And it's so? weird. It's just, I think at this, the, the biggest takeaway I think is absolute certainty. What is certain in this world, right? And mm-hmm. how open are you to being challenged on things you believe to be certain? Okay. So I'll leave it at that. Very philosophical, but. All right. I'll pick your brain on this later. Yeah. Okay. So Mikey's a special guest. Mm-hmm. He's going to come along for our making it up ride. Eugene picks a topic. I pick a topic from the past week's uh, cultural news. And we just talk about it. Share our thoughts. Not to- necessarily looking to mm-hmm. arrive in an answer so much as just. See what are the different layers that exist. Yeah, it'll be good to have a guest on this because by this point, I think Eugene and I, we kind of know where we, we know stand we're on either side of an you argument. You guys know how to provoke each other. We don't do so much of that. I, I, I wish Mikey was was on board for some of our brand discussions yeah. in the past. It's too bad we didn't pick one of those. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so this week um, I picked this it's not really a new news item, but I thought this was so interesting, is that the U.S. Army develops video games under what they call the Early Synthetic Prototyping Program. And there's this one video game that's kind of their poster child for this program called Operation Overmatch. And it's very similar to most military sim- like combat games, the, the way it works, okay? Um, But the reason they developed this is because they're seeking to change how the army spends its money and fights its wars through the data they gather in this video game. So how it works is that it's available online, like it's available on Steam, but it's actually only um, accessible to someone with a .mil account. So you have to have been in the military. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's like specifically soldiers or if you were working at an office, like at a desk, you could play it as well. So right now there's about a thousand players and the aim is to get tens of thousands The philosophy, which I'm really on board with, is engineers and scientists in their respective teams, they come up with these ideas for how to fight wars, how to develop weapons, but they don't actually get tested by soldiers until, you know. Combat. Yeah, until combat or really further later stage of that kind of um, development of this new technology. And so what Operation Overmatch could provide is feedback from soldiers much earlier in the development stage of these weapons, which I think is something that really should have come along earlier. But I guess it's a little bit tricky to... Yeah, because like when it comes to these measures, it's you're really at a point where you're testing in a vacuum. Yeah. And then the only real time it gets put into place is when it actually is needed, hopefully anyways. Yeah. Right? It seems like you're also testing with the ability to retest. You know, it's like you go play a video game, you know you can start it again. Yeah. When you go take that into the field, it's like there isn't really many regos. Like you can't restart. 
Yeah, so that's actually one of the things I'm really interested in because the pro of using a video game, using like a virtual simulation, is that you can retest a situation, right? Like the developers, they can change a parameter and that will affect how the players respond. But at the same time, because it's a video game, there's no guarantee that a player's actions really do reflect how they would behave in reality. Let's use me as an example. I don't have a .mil account. You know, I would just try all different things inside the video game. But if I knew I only had, you know, obviously one life or one one go at it, I'd be a lot more calculated. Yeah. I would almost be more calculated inside of a video game than I would be calculated inside real life, simply just because I feel like, I don't know, like the environment doesn't seem real. So I, I couldn't react based on like right away I'm in it. I would just feel like I would have to kind of know the map and look around and, and really be involved. Oh, you know, maybe I'm talking myself in a circle. I, I kind of feel like there's probably something there for for learning and like the output of it, but I just don't know how that translates just to real life. I really don't. Yeah. There's so many variables that as much as you want to bake into a game, it's not there yet. But I guess at the end of the day, it's... I mean, it's hard to measure something now versus where it could go. I think part of what's going to come down to is how the data is analyzed. I think just being able to collect that data is interesting because I don't know fully how it works, but it says that the game monitors all of the player actions. So it's all logged, I assume, like under what situation you used what weapon and to what degree. Um, but then when it comes to analysis, I guess it, it feels like you'd have to take it with a grain of salt because the way someone approaches a video game, like you said, is like not going to be how you approach real life. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how you exactly parse those things. But the real, that is interesting to me, the whole virtual VS real life reaction. But the main reason I picked this was because I'm interested in how technology is able to cut down on development time or able to finesse development time. And I also kind of thought of um, us as making at how much time we've spent on like the website product without being able to like quickly iterate. It kind of reminds me of how like there's like a airline simulator, but this is just like military based. What's the airline simulator? Well, you know, like how people go into like a airplane school or or their education to actually fly these large planes and they have these simulation flights. land on like specific runways. Yeah, Yeah. I I think that's the, that's like right where my mind goes. It's like completely beneficial you know, because there's scenarios that they can place these people in and see what happens. But I think of that as more of like a training and it trains the person. I don't see that. I don't really know what people get from that based on the behavior of people and how they're going to design the aircraft versus just the training and how it works with like, you go into the situation, they put you in crazy weather, you can weather the storm, bang, you get a check mark, you know, versus them going and changing the way airplanes are, uh, based on how people are interacting with it, you know? So I think there's something there for these simulations and what you just kind of brought up there was like, it's kind of flipping my mind thinking that there's this environment and they want to see how people react inside of it without like a desired outcome of like, other than complete emission. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? Actually thinking about the airplane example, it'd be interesting if you had a simulation of the entire um like boarding a flight process, because I think that could be fine-tuned. I mean, I'm not a pilot, but I ride a lot of planes, and I think the whole experience of like, They've, they've gone you know, and done research on this. Have they? There's like the most optimal way. This, we're currently not 
in the most optimal way of, I think, boarding a plane. Yeah. I couldn't tell you exactly what it was, but I, I recall reading something. But it would be interesting if you could get, because the great thing about a video game is you can get thousands of people to, like, you know, test a thing and, like, abuse it and, you, you know, use it in different ways that you don't expect. So if you could get them to do, like, I mean, I don't know why anyone would do this, but to go through a virtual boarding a plane experience to find out. Yeah. I mean, what's stopping, you know, a game maker from partnering with, you know, the military yeah. and creating something where it basically becomes a research tool it's and it's transparently known that it's a research tool. Yeah. It's so interesting actually because I don't, I don't, I read a lot about video games. I don't usually play um, like first person shooters, but you know, Overwatch is really popular. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was funny that this game's name is really similar, right? Like this is Overmatch and Overwatch is super popular. So could not that have happened where there's already this fully developed video game that's very popular. I don't know, yeah. the US Army for security yeah. reasons. They just maybe. need to get in there on the, uh, what is it, Counter-Strike? Yeah. That's the one where it's like, you know, you have unmanned pieces of uh, machinery and yeah. you have these kids that are sitting behind a computer who are just ripping like 24-7 yeah. being inside there. So I got involved with it for a little bit oh, and then yeah? I was like, whoa, like where did eight hours just go? I got to <laughs> I gotta get out of here, you know? And then I went skateboarding and snowboarding, but I think the the ability for scenarios to get played out in different ways, like I don't have a video game console simply because I know if I have that console, like I'm going to spend a lot of time on there. Yeah. So um, I'm just trying to get outside a bit more. <laughs> actually, I was trying to, I was actually also trying to think of a way this topic would be interesting to Eugene. So I was going to mention FIFA. I don't know if you play. I, You know, I, I was like NBA 2K guy, but like FIFA, uh, yeah, I have friends that uh, actually work at EA. Okay. So the whole development of the game and, and watching it and being involved from like a peripheral of the things that they're spending all this time on. And then looking at Eugene and his uh, his infatuation with soccer is like pretty awesome. <laughs> well, I was just wondering, like, so is it even possible that <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know, because the game mimics real life players, right? Is it possible that you, as a video game player, can use the team in a way that would be different from how the team is actually used? Yeah. And would that data be interesting to a team owner? I don't know. So basically you're saying that how a team lines up in real life could be manipulated to be played differently in FIFA. And yeah. could that And then could that information be relevant in real life? So what's interesting is that to kind of continue to kind of continue the the video game narrative, football manager, which is a management game based around like, you know, you take on a team and you don't actually play in an action mode, you're basically controlling the transfers, who you're buying, oh, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the economic side, the yeah. financial side. Yeah. And for the longest time, people have actually used that to help scout and predict who the next star is because there's such a massive network of people that are doing the research. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And, yeah. You're just harnessing, you know, this massive video game database for your real life benefit. Yeah, exactly. Well. And, the, and also um, to that point, Football Manager recently announced that now players can also come out as being homosexual, which is in the game. Yeah, like you, because it, it's trying to mimic reality. And like, although football is so highly guarded, where you don't really have a lot of players coming out, uh -huh. um, they just in, included that that oh, feature. So interesting. Yeah. Another side note: 
I, uh, I am actually in Football Manager 2006. What do you mean? You've been playing for no, 11 no, years? No, I'm like a player in it. Wait, what? Yeah. Someone who plays Virtual Football Manager plays Eugene. screencast. I think it was 2006 or 2007. So with, with that, I had heard that there's actually teams that are having video game players that represent their teams online in these types of games. So like you would have a physical team. Now this is maybe, you know, football as in soccer. Yeah, yeah. That would have like a pick any team, like name a team. I, I think what you're getting at is these, what happens is in those instances is like an actual club team, like, well, let's say West Ham United. Sure. They'll have an esports team. Yes, exactly. That's, I think, what you're getting at. Yeah, right? yeah, that's it. That's, so that's where like now you have these, these physical sports <clears throat> with this representation of people in a room playing that team Wait. and battling other teams. So you have like a, <laughs> you have like a virtual team of, of really established players. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the stuff on Vice that floats around on the, the video game kind of championships and whatnot uh-huh. and the types of um, games that they're playing. And how it actually results in like full on teams that train and, and run yeah. plays yeah. together. Yeah. And now yeah. that that actually exists in sport and it's actually being embraced by the teams themselves. Yeah. Oh, that's so- I, I can definitely say that when you when you play FIFA enough, there are certain things you can take away and apply into real world the real world. Believe like it or not. If you play football as well as play yeah. FIFA. As, I mean, Elphick mentioned it. Okay. And I, I believe him because I see it too. It's like when you have this bird, relative bird's eye view of the game right. and you know, hey, you know what? There's certain instances that are successful tactically. There's no reason why that doesn't work. Maybe not 100%. Right. Even well, if it's 75% applicable, you can apply that into the real world. I mean, that's the same idea as what Mikey was saying about the airplane simulator being a training tool. So yeah. in this case, FIFA as training tool. So I guess the missing piece there is... Is the club using this information? Yeah. Which the, brings the conversation yeah. totally full circle right back to the military side of people play these types of first-person shooter games. You know, like, you know, I'm 37. My game was like the last one that I really got into that I enjoyed was, I don't know, like Halo or something. Mm-hmm. Like something just mission-based. Yeah. It was first-person. You'd run around, shoot things. And then I, you know, I don't know if Xbox is playing on how I do that and developing new levels on it, but it's definitely interesting. This is the virtual side. They of have like to something. use it because yeah. they're probably looking at how you're engaging. What, what, what are things that you personally resonate to? And like, Oh, you know what? You know, let's just say hypothetically um, in this multiplayer game, 97% of players are playing this type of match mm-hmm. and they probably just like expand on that. You know, Though, I mean, FIFA would have to make the data available to, actual clubs yeah or they could just well i what i imagine they could do is it could be a whole nother side business where you can license out information oh oh. now we're going full circle into like facebook here premium i can't start giving away games i don't want to let this data i don't want to let this subject slide without (laughs) mentioning ender's game have either of you read that book no what's that okay so ender's game is sharice is really good for Random stuff that I'm not put on to. Well, it's just a different world. Here's some. It's It's a different different world. world. It's a different world that um, you and I inhabit. So Ender's Game was published in 1985, and it's written by Orson Scott Card. And it's kind of a young adult fiction book, but it's both of you would still enjoy it, I believe, right now. And the entire premise is that 
Uh, am I giving anything away? I don't think so. Anyway, it's from 1985, so there's no spoiler alerts on this anymore. Um, basically, children run the military through playing virtual military games, and they don't realize that their simulations are the real thing. That's the entire premise of the book. So the wars of this like dystopic future world are being fought by like 11 to 14-year-olds, and they, the kids don't know it essentially, but they're really, really good at mm-hmm. what they think is a, a game. Yeah. I mean, there you go. Yeah, if it comes in an audiobook, I'm in. Otherwise, I'm going to have to reread the same page like 30 times <laughs> falling asleep. No, I think it's available. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Cool. Is second, second World still a thing? Uh, is, is it Second it Life? Second Life? Yeah. Is that still a thing? Didn't it shut down? I'm going to look it up. Was, weren't like people pouring money into that and stuff? Yeah. Like that? Yes. Maybe that's like next podcast one day but all this talk of like things being virtual versus being real i I don't know these are my favorite kinds of topics eugene can tell you i pick this stuff all the time um no second life is still around okay second life was too big to fail launched in 2003 has over a million users but like people are putting money in i remember there was brands like american apparel having stores and gap having stores and that was like you know, um, free, but then you could just like put money into this virtual thing. It's like pre-Bitcoin craziness. I'm so fascinated (laughs) by this kind of stuff because I'm interested in how, whether people replicate their real behavior in virtual worlds or whether they use virtual worlds as... Escape. Yeah, or a way to express themselves in a different way. This is going to go big. This is like a bigger topic. (laughs) You guys want your own podcast? I'll do it to you. (laughs) Okay, cool. Yeah, this is like a social media kind of go here. Yeah. All right. um, We'll save it for another time. Sounds good. Hey, Mikey, you're you're welcome back anytime. All right. Sounds good. (laughs) You passed the test. Just a plane ticket away. So my subject this week is Metro Cards with Barbara Kruger Art are coming to New York City. So starting November 1st, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, aka the MTA, will release 50,000 limited edition Metro Cards with Kruger's question on the back. So these cards are available um, at four different stations around New York City. They align with some site-specific work uh, Mrs. Kruger is creating for the Performa Biennial. And the designs include one that features a series of questions, who is healed, who is housed, who is silent, who speaks. And the second version is whose hopes, whose fears, whose values, whose justice. Kruger herself, she's excited about the possibility because subway cards can be widely dispersed and distributed and will be available to a varied mix of riders. And previous limited edition cards include the 2015 All-Star Game, and uh, one super hyped one with Supreme, who oddly enough bears a resemblance to Kruger's own artwork. I think there's a little bit of controversy there in terms of... I think she herself does not mind, but it's possible that it was a direct... It's just the red and white. That's it. Is that like the biggest? Or the font? I think it's a font. Oh, I mean, it's... It's quite similar. It's quite similar, but I think they've both established Moved themselves on. separately. Yeah, from well, the one, one's a brand and one's a person. artist. Yeah. yeah. 
So this is another interesting thing too, because there's talks that in the future, the Metro cards themselves might be phased out. So the actual topic itself here about Kruger and Metro cards wasn't the exact reason why I wanted to talk about this. My actual interest is what does it mean when you have these relatively affordable opportunities to, to present art to, as she mentioned, a varied mix of people. You know, these are people that might never really consider art, but now, hey, you know what, this is different than my usual, you know, my Metro card. Yeah. You know, and I, I, like, I like it when things like this enter a space where it's kind of like, how do you put it? It's kind of like street art in a way, but it's also tangible. Mm-hmm. I can take this, I can... It's if I product. really want exactly. Yeah. I could take this, I could frame it. I actually it would look kind of cool if you had just a small frame of yeah. like a metro card. But yeah, let me I actually want to start this question um pointed at you, Mikey. What value do you think things like this have in the world where art is being put into the hands of people that aren't necessarily looking for it? I think the you know, I, the first thought that comes to my mind is maybe other areas where this starts to exist. You know, I mean, the Metro card one is kind of hot right now, especially just in, in my mind, just simply because of the, it's very focused inside of New York. And it's mm-hmm. like New York and Metro and, and like subway is like very, you know, like a, I'm like a New Yorker. I'm on the subway. Um, I'm going to generalize that simply just because I don't see it happening many other places. Yeah. So if you look at other areas where this has happened, I can't really think of the exact artist, but maybe like stamps or, you know, special editions, versions of those. Or it, I think it actually represents like a time period more than it does just the, the, um, the art itself. And with your discussion of, you know, how to keep these things actually relevant, I think it's a question of like, they're just trying to bring relevance to some of these different things like a Metro card. Like, why is it that they're talking about phasing it out, yet there's these types of efforts on these things is like a last ditch or like a, no, 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 this is important or no, this is now a vehicle for something that's more than just take your ride. It's like a collectible moment yeah for something that is very uh, culturally relevant. And, and, and I think that inside that there's, there's not much more that I would take away from it other than just, you know, public art being given to the mass is, is, you know, something that New York is completely known for all the way back to Keith Haring yeah. and, 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 Having, you know, uh, the last job that I was at, we did a, a licensing project with him, which was really cool because I got to dig into the archives and it was like understanding how that worked in the subway culture and art. That's like a, a direct, you know, it's like a link, especially within New York. So um, I'm curious as to this happening in other places of the world and doing it outside of, you know, like you could have like a token or you could have you know, like a, an octopus card here done by... Someone yeah, they've, or they've done it periodically, but the difference is that since the Metro card is on paper, right, that makes it well, a little bit plastic. Paper. Oh, is it? It's it's not paper per it, se, but it is disposable. That's what you mean. Yeah, yeah like it, the octopus yeah. card here in Hong, the octopus card here in Hong Kong isn't disposable. Is I guess what I'm trying to say. Did, well, wait. I wanted to. They do have. Before we go tickets, on to yeah. talk about Hong Kong examples, the. This struck me as well about this news item is that the MTA itself, like New York in general is good at public art, but also the MTA is surprisingly good at art because they're so rubbish at, you know, their actual train systems. But the art itself, you know, they have sculptures and stations and mosaics and almost all their stations that were 
explicitly commissioned by artists or in collaboration with different people. And even the buskers that you find at some stations are MTA approved. So weirdly, like there are many things that are not great about the MTA, but the public art really generous of the MTA actually to infuse art into places that we have to be in. You yeah. know, it's, it's, incident, it's incidental that we get to encounter art on our yeah. train journeys. And the MTR, the MTR here in Hong Kong is rubbish at it because we're on the MTR all the time, but all we get is ads Ad. everywhere yeah. on yeah. every yeah. surface. Like I do like the fact that this whole project is very pedestrian, very accessible, yeah. right? And the, as you mentioned, like the subway system in big cities is the one remaining place where we interact with people of all walks of life, mm-hmm. where it's very easy for us to just remove ourselves and hang out in cer- certain pockets, whether it's online, whether it's in real life. In Vancouver, we have uh, like all the mailboxes are done by different artists. Oh, that's cool. You know, there's, there's, um, I guess, some stuff down on Granville Island, which is like a little small market area where those guys from is Latin America, I'm not too sure where it is, but they've, they've done some public art on like grain elevators. And I just, I see this, this piece that's happening inside of the, the MTA. Mm-hmm. It actually exists in other areas where you, you know, you have paid versions of it where you have brands that are buying the front page of newspapers as ads. Yeah. You have, um, hotels that sell the keys during key times of the year to a brand like at a trade show, you know, it'll be like your hotel key, you'll look down at it and it'll be like promoting a weekend concert or something right. and you're staying in Vegas. Uh, but then the art side of it, I think is very interesting because you have something that is not overtly promotion of of something that's like you feel too bad about. Somehow it, it bridges being collectible. Yeah. Somehow, you know, when in reality, it's it's probably something in the background of like, the MTA, specifically on this New York example, doing something to, to maintain relevance or to exercise a vehicle of like public art, but they're partnering with an artist. So there's something there where it's like, you don't know where the commercial side is, but you can you can see the value for the artist and you can see the value for the MTA. You just don't know which side uh, like is pushing it. Was it the artist that came and said, hey, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm thinking. Or was it the MTA going, oh, okay, we got to do something here. Let's, let's, uh, like, how did this opportunity arise? That's yeah. the question I have from this. Yeah. Not so much of like the value. You, I think you, the value is cool. Yeah. I was also thinking that too. I was like, the stuff that Kruger mentions is there's a little, it's a little bit rooted in, in politics because they're inspired by previous pieces she had done. Um, one was in response to Dan Quayle. And I think it's something to do with his vice presidential run and his family and his, a commentary on family values. So it's kind of entering this weird space where it could go two ways or it could also not, right? It could be like, you know, political motives or just it's it's a very visible piece of real estate, however small it is. And it's also susceptible to being bought, as you mentioned, like what's stopping Coca-Cola from buying a, a spot on the back? Totally. Right? Totally. And is it wrong is it bad like I'm, I'm wondering because like if they were to buy it but then however millions of dollars they would get for it they could filter it back into some other project yeah what's it a vehicle for exactly you know because i remember you know like the onset of uh <clears throat> of advertising in a washroom i was like what this used to be like such like a safe place <laughs> now i just go to the washroom and uh i'm just getting inundated with ads again and i'm like okay well 
it's hard to escape an ad. Uh, you know, as a male, you're standing up and you're mm-hmm. going to the washroom looking, you know, a mere 10 inches from a wall and you're just got an ad blasted in your face. It's like, what, what about that is, is normal? Well, it's just an added revenue stream for someone else who's just trying to maximize some profit. And it, it's valuable on both sides of the equation for, for the club, the mall, or for the brand itself. It's just more of like, not too sure what it's trying to accomplish other than impression. Mm-hmm. Actually, so the, I mean, I don't know if this provides more information on how this happened, but the New York Times article said it's in conjunction with the Performa Biennial, which is taking place in New York this month, so the first three weeks of November. And on their site, it's described as, the Biennial provides an extraordinary and very very public platform for showing the essential role of art in society. Through live performance, we touch people directly, change their minds, and introduce them viscerally to the complicated emotional and aesthetic expressions of artists responding to the world in which we live today. So I think there is, I think if you looked into their mission, like their agenda, there is some level of aspiring for public education or I don't know Mm -hmm. if education shows like my bias, but just like trying to, they are trying to say something. They're like trying to make a statement or Ms. Kruger is trying to make a statement with the metric cards. It's not just, this is a collectible art item, but this these are ideas that I have that I want people to be aware of. That's, yeah, I mean, that's the some, code. That's yeah. the code to crack into yeah. these uh, these types of you know places where branding can be had versus just like a typical a typical piece. Like you, you now as an artist, able to have a moment where you're able to uh, narrate, you know, to to a larger audience than yeah. just like a paid audience at a museum. Yeah, there's definitely a sense of provocation yeah. with with her with the pieces she's she's put out there and i think that is at the end of the day you good art at the very at the very least should have some some form of that it's so interesting to think i'm still thinking about how the same thing could be applied anywhere else in the world because the metro card is you have to purchase it there's no octopus version of the metro card and the only other thing i could think of for now where it's like you need to receive this thing and can't avoid it is receipts. I don't know if maybe there are some artists out there who've already done that, but it'd be interesting as well if an artist got together with like Starbucks and said, can I put some kind of black and white art at the bottom of all of your receipts? And I, I don't know, that'd be really interesting to me as well because you would encounter you would encounter a lot of customers who aren't even aware of this artist or looking for an art piece and it's like, oh, what is this? Yeah, the the element of surprise or the element of like the metro the metro card seems very natural. You might just you know buy your token or you you might buy your ride. You might look down and go, oh, like maybe I gotta buy another one of these. I kind of want to keep this one. <laughs> yeah, you know. So maybe there's like something on that where there's a permanence that comes from something that's very like disposable. Yeah. And and in Toronto where I grew up, it was like the TTC mm-hmm. was just tokens. Yeah, and then it was just paper transfers that were like on the, just the worst type of paper, you know, with like ink all over your hands and you just wanted to use it yeah. really quick and get rid of it. That was like the the piece that I got from it. But these types of, uh, you know, uh, I don't, maybe installation or, or maybe moment, <clears throat> that part there is like, yeah, it seems, it seems less, less um, disposable, which is kind of cool. Do you guys own any art items that are similar to this? No, I'm like famous for going to places and buying postcards. 
Okay. And buying a bunch of different postcards and then just reframing them as like a moment that <clears throat> that like I create. I don't have enough money to go buy all the big pieces of art, so I'll just make my own. <laughs> well, yeah. that's why I said like it, it, like this, like <clears throat> as in somehow you've encountered affordable art or or incidentally came across affordable art. No? I'm not a big art collector. Yeah, I'm fascinated by it, but I don't really have the ability to go like my mind doesn't work like if I buy this now, this guy's on to something. I don't have the foresight for art, so I'm usually the guy that yeah, goes to the, the desire. Yeah. yeah, I'm like the guy that uh, goes to a museum and looks around, and then would also go to an art show and look around. You know, I don't, I don't, I can't really spot the difference between like, oh, this guy's going to be something. I should buy something here, and then know that in ten years, if this continues, it's going to be worth money. You know, like the whole art world is very fascinating because. You know, like the, the Damien Hurst and all these things. Like my mind just goes to um, this this Metro card. You know, why wouldn't there be something for the tube um, with like a Damien Hurst piece? Like, why why wouldn't there be something like that? But I'm not too sure. But but I I, I truthfully believe that there's like a the ability for how do I put it? It's like the ability for like an artist just to have a a, a vehicle you know, where they can be heard. Because I'm, I'm sure that uh, the lady that's doing this doesn't have the craziest social media following. There isn't like, they haven't like uh, built themselves up that way. And, and if that's the new way to to get in front of people, then why don't you just go back door and just go analog yeah. into these things that are just going to be a part of people's lives, regardless of social media, regardless of Wi-Fi, regardless of cell phone, regardless of screen. Yeah, it's like, it's a physical thing. And it's unavoidable, as you mentioned. If you're gonna take the subway, I mean, mind you, it's only in a, a select few stations, but yeah, and only fifty thousand. There's no algorithm cards. at play here, so no, it's but, random. Yeah, so there's something, there's something of that of like discovery, a sense of discovery of like I'm gonna go, like I, I, you know, there's there's a couple of us at a table talking about this thing that's happening on the other side of the world, you know. So there's something where it would be really cool to to own a piece of this moment. I'm just not too sure what what the hell I'd do with it after. I'd be like, yeah, I got one. And I'd be like, oh, you know? Straight to eBay. Straight to eBay. It's oh, a resale. No, that's so sad. <laughs> or is it just reality? Gosh, that's, yeah. that's a sad note to end on. Oh, man. Oops. That's, uh... <laughs> no, 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 no. It's okay. That's about like 60% of our podcast. <laughs> oh, there you go. All right. It's not, it's not, it's not one of those optimistic ones. Well, all the, all so. the Supreme stuff was like very, 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 I mean, it wasn't art, you know, it was like a straight product. Yeah. And you saw people who were just like using it and people were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're using that. Like, that's like a Supreme one. Yeah. And then there's people selling them again. But in reality, it's like, it's like a dollar fifty or a $5 card. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's bigger than $5, which I think this, this card, this MTA, you know, uh, way to go use something that people have to use regardless. There's going to be people that use it. Throw it away. Exactly. Other people that get it, hold on to it. And regardless, it has the value and the the usage, which is to take you from A to B. It's just interesting what different people think of as collectible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's something where it's like, once again, it's a moment. Yeah. It's like very personal. So maybe that's what this is. Maybe it's something that's like very personal. If you if you vibe with this artist, then you're you're gonna be quite drawn to it. Or if you do some research and you're connected in a way where you, I mean, I don't know the, the the entire way that this has actually been broadcasted. I ran through it on like three or four sites a couple of days ago. 
and I just kept getting inundated with it. So I tried to learn a bit more, but I'm sure that there's, you know, a larger news that is broadcasting this. So it's probably got a, a pretty wide net and it's probably accomplishing the, the goal, which was to, you know, either question or uh, have some sort of a political stance. Yeah. You know, so I think it's accomplishing it regardless if it's physical or not. People are getting it. Yeah. And I think that just returns back to the purpose of art and is it successful? Because I mean, at the end of the day, this is not really a means to an end of for anything, right? It's accessible. So if you're able to have an impact, maybe that's the currency of like good art. Should we end it off there? Yeah. I think that's a good place to... Turn it back around. Boom. Made it positive. Boom. Right. <laughs> I think right. that's a good place to end things for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, our community, and our membership opportunities, you can check us out at Macon.com, where there are lots of stories available to listen on the sights and sounds of creative culture. And if you like this podcast, and I've said it before, if you hate this podcast, please rate us accordingly. I think the feedback is helpful. Yep. Give um, us a review, share this episode. Even if you hate it, you should share it and or tell your friends why you hated it. <laughs> probably not. I don't think that's going to happen. They probably haven't made it this far. Well, maybe they just listened to this episode. Maybe. Anyway. I'm Mikey. I'm Sharice. I'm Eugene. And this is Making It Up.